You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 1059 The Region. I'm Ann Romer, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On The Feed, how you can bring holiday cheer to local seniors. Also on the show, a survey about airline food. Which one offers the best in-flight meal? Well, it may surprise you. That's coming up. But we begin with the Fill a Purse campaign. Michelle Donnelly joins us. Fill a Purse for a Sister campaign, the Woodbridge Community Lead. I'm so pleased to be with you you today. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you very much for having me. So what made you feel that you needed to be a part of this incredible initiative? Um, I was asked uh, last year just to join and and kind of bring in a purse or two. And the more I looked into it, the more it came to my mind that there was a great need out there for women escaping abuse, um, escaping trafficking that required my input. It needed a little bit of a passion for me to help these women. They, I'll never meet them, you know, I, I but I probably know them. Um, they come from all walks of life, and I just thought, this is something I can do. So when, when you can grab a charity by the, the horns and go, yes, I can be involved. I can spend this amount of time, and I can expend this amount of energy. Because we all lead busy lives, and so this was my thing. And tell me about the significance of the purse, and also what goes into that purse, and what the desired outcome is in terms of elevating these women who are at at a very difficult time in their lives. Absolutely. We always usually go everywhere with a purse in our hands or a knapsack. We don't leave the house without one. Your knapsack might have your kids' diapers in it or it's got your water bottle. It's got your um, everyday necessities. So when a woman is leaving uh, an abusive situation where she may have had to leave without any of her um, uh, necessary items, this way we fill a purse with those things that she's going to need right away, emergency kind of items, and then one or two items that are just kind of make you smile, make you sparkle, make you feel as if somebody is thinking about you and um, appreciate what you're giving them. So the emergency items could be anything from sanitary, sanitary napkins products, or, yeah. or <laughs> hairbrushes or toothpaste or toothpaste. you know things that you just yeah. didn't have time to get. But I'm most interested in the other items that might go in there. You, you encourage oh, yeah. people to think about giving a gift card for coffee or something that they can, you know, tangibly hand in and get something back. But what really touches my heart is that some people write notes. Oh, the notes are amazing. The feedback from the notes, um, when someone comes uh, forward and says, I received a purse and I got a card just telling me that I was thought of, um, to hang in there, um, you know, seize your inner moment and this, you are strong and there are other women behind you. Uh, we see you, we, we hear you. Um, just to help them have a sense that they're a part of a community. 
that they're well thought of, that they're loved, um, even in this time of crisis, that they will get through it. Um, there are means out there. There's support systems out there for them. So all they have to do is try hard. Earrings were one of the best ones. I, you know, just or even a li- some people like putting in a little bit of lipstick. These are all new items. They're not used. Um, the purse itself could be used. You know, it could be just a gently used purse that you don't need any longer, or you just go. I really want to do something with this campaign. I'm going to take my my Gucci bag, <laughs> and off you go. It it's just a matter of taking that item and making the person feel that they're not secondhand. That they are you know, first and foremost in our minds right now. And valued and cherished. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a very important initiative, and it, and it's, it is successful in its way in just even for a short time empowering women and making them feel worthwhile, which yeah. is something that's so difficult. But the bigger problem exists. Absolutely. And, that is, and that's not what I'm, I'm, I'm working on. Yeah. I'm working on, you know, it would be great if we didn't need purses for people uh, escaping abuse. Um, or that we had enough shelters you, for women to go to. Yeah, that's yeah. a big issue nowadays. We see it on the news all the time, and it still floors me, which is why, again, I got passionate about wanting to get in there. Um, simple things can go into the purse, like a like some gum or Tic Tac, um, chapstick, something I need right now because of the weather. You know, We're all needing that little bit of you know, support, and you look at these items, and they're brand new, um, so it's not something Something that you had to go use or borrow from somebody else or that you have to do without. And so much of that can be original. You know, whatever is put into the purse is from the heart and the kindness of the person who's filling Uh, the purse. And each person is different. And businesses contributed. We had businesses donate toothpaste, toothbrush, um, dental floss, dental picks, um, all kinds of um, items that would come more in a bulk um, session kind of thing from their business and they were able to do that. We had lovely knapsacks um, donated for um, the men's shelter the, the up in York region and um, it was filled more with what you typically call men's things, shaving cream, shavers, that kind of thing, um, socks. Um, also mitts, hats and scarves go into these uh, purses and knapsacks. Um, I saw some beautiful scarves get uh, tied onto the handle of the uh, purses before they get uh, bundled up and donated to the uh, individual centers. It's a way of reminding people of their dignity and, and their worth. And also it's fun to look inside a purse and see what it's exciting like little treasures yeah, are in yeah. there. For, it's just, so for a moment, you forget about the difficulties in your life. Yeah. What about women who are fleeing domestic violence and they have their children in tow? They have their kids with them yeah. because that in, their, in her estimation, the woman fleeing feels that that's the best move for her children to get them out of a difficult situation. Yeah. Is there some way that people can make their transition a little bit happier? I'm not sure. We we did discuss a, a lot about what goes into a person. We had to maintain it to the, the woman first or the youth because they could be young women. As far as the children, there have been items donated for children. And what I have personally done is that still goes to the shelter, but it doesn't go in the purse. It's a separate item so that the uh, center can give it accordingly. So when someone comes, they can. if she's alone, fine, she, just, she gets the purse, right? And she's happy with that. If she's got a couple of kids in tow, they can then look to their supply list and go, oh, we've got, we've got some things for this child. We've got some diapers and we've got, we've got some books for a kid, you know. Um, that way, the distribution is then up to the centers to look after. 
And in our case here, in our area, in the region, we're talking about a particular women's shelter. I believe that there are two locations. Are we correct? At liberty to mention the name. Yes. We won't give the location necessarily, no, we, but the absolutely, name. Absolutely, yes. Um, I got to meet uh, the other day with Sunder Singh, who is the executive director for the Elspeth Hayworth Center for Women. Um, there are two locations. One is in uh, Vaughan. It's in Woodbridge area. And the other one is just south of us in the uh, Finch Avenue, uh, Finch and Western Road area. The feeling I got when I when I came with 86 purses loaded <laughs> into my poor little Volkswagen, it was it was like to the brim. Um, I I could just barely see out the back window. Just so you know, they were just in awe. They were astonished that the community around us was so caring and giving and. Because it's, it is a community thing. It wasn't just me that went and did this. This came from the women and the businesses that were in the neighborhood. They, they were on social media. Somebody saw it and go, oh, and then I thought I'd get a few purses. And she goes and I put it out to my social media Instagram. And she goes, all of a sudden, I had like 12 purses show up at my door, you know. So the, the center itself is very grateful for everyone that contributed or made this happen for them so that they can help look after those that are in need. And as we look back on the commemoration of the Montreal Massacre, Ecole Polytechnique, 30 years ago on December 6th, so just a day or two ago, 30 years, it is our way of moving, we hope, some progress into the year 2020 and that we never forget what happened and we cherish our women and our mothers and our sisters and our children. Yeah. We are a bigger community than we think sometimes. We th- we think we're alone when we really are not. Uh, we have all stories to share and we're scared to share them or or we may feel shame in sharing them. Um, but by sharing them, sometimes that helps somebody else go, wait a minute, I'm there too or I need that too or... Maybe we have to watch out for each other a little more um, and be kinder with each other. What can our amazing listeners who are very moved by what you said right now, how can they help? Oh, there's, there's several ways. One is next year. Find the, the, um, the drop-off location in your own area. Follow us on Facebook. It's Philip. A purse for a sister campaign. The full name, I know it's a mouthful, but that's what it is. And follow us, you know, be prepared, you know, to, to come forward and, you know, drop off something because we will appreciate every single one of those purses. The other item is that we do have a GoFundMe page. We are incorporated, but we are not a charity yet. It is with the CRA right now. So we're hoping that that's going to be in the next four or five months or so. I thank you for taking the time to be with us on the feed and doing what you do and helping in your own way. And you really do make a difference. Philippers for a sister campaign, Michelle Donnelly, Woodbridge Community Lead. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. While the holidays may be a wonderful time to share with loved ones, it can also be very lonely for seniors. Afuaba with a program that could spread some holiday cheer. We are in the thick of holiday shopping, getting ready to visit family and friends, and of course exchange a number of gifts. But instead of maybe thinking about your close family members and friends, how about purchasing a gift for someone you don't know, but somebody who would be as 
just as happy to receive a well-loved gift. Joining me to chat today to talk about the Be a Santa to a Senior program is none other than Faryar Faroudi. He's the owner and director of Home Instead Senior Care that's based in Vaughan and Richmond Hill. Faryar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Of course, it's our pleasure. For listeners uh, that may not know, talk to me a little bit about uh, Home Instead Senior Care. Homestead Senior Care is a network of offices coast-to-coast focused on enhancing the lives of seniors across our communities. Uh, We provide home care services for the elderly who prefer to continue living at home, Uh, whether that would be assistance with meal preparations, uh, helping with laundry, even running errands, getting groceries, uh, supporting with medication reminders, and even support with things such as uh, incontinence care and assistance with dressing and showers, bathing, things of that nature. So our goal really is to allow the 9 out of 10 seniors who prefer to live at home instead of anywhere else, it's our goal to allow them that opportunity to continue living at their home instead of having to move to another to another location, such as a retirement community. Oh, okay, that's awesome. So it's, it's still offering them that uh, sort of independence, but just with a little bit of assistance. Exactly. It's really a, it's about allowing them to continue to live independently, uh, but also safely at the same time. Uh, as we start considering some of the changes that our bodies go through as we age, uh, our muscles may become weaker, our bones may become more fragile, maybe our, our vision um, will start deteriorating a little bit. And, you know, all of this cumulatively, uh, if you can imagine, could increase your chances of falls uh, in and around the home. So wherever possible, we're there to be with that elderly individual to help them with their daily activities of living so that, again, they're, they're not exposing themselves to too much risk, uh, but they still get to maintain that independence in an environment that makes sense to them. Of course, we are in the month of December, and that means uh, Christmas shopping, holiday shopping. Sometimes the holidays can get lonely, and seniors are no different. And so there's a unique program called a Be a Santa to a Senior program. If you can talk to me about what that's about. This is such an amazing program. It was originally developed uh, back in 2003 with the objective of brightening the lives of lonely or isolated seniors in our communities. So since its inception 25-odd years ago, we've been able to deliver uh, as a network uh, throughout North America, U.S. and in Canada, gifts to seniors throughout our communities. Uh, I think the last count is about 750,000 seniors have received gifts on these days on, on during this time. And this is very exciting because senior isolation and loneliness is a very common theme in our communities. And it's often something that's overlooked. Uh, there are many amazing charities out there during the holidays, uh, but the ones that are often overlooked again are the ones that are focused towards uh, those individuals in the elderly community. So something of this nature really helps brighten up their days. It's really part of our commitment to being able to enhance the lives of those seniors that are living in our community. Oh, that is so great. I mean, just hearing how how it came about and just how it's just putting a little bit of a smile or an extra ray of sunshine into their lives, it falls right in line with the holiday season. So give me a little bit of background as to how exactly this works um, in terms of the gifts that are uh, donated or given, and then how do you sort of distribute it out to the seniors? I'm happy to do so. Every office 
runs this program somewhat differently. Some offices throughout the GTA uh, may choose to have a tree set up at various locations along with ornaments and uh, a name and a basic description as to what that individual would like. Uh, here at Homestead of Richmond, Ellen Vaughn, uh, we've taken a different approach. We've actually uh, decided to partner with uh, various corporations throughout our communities, such as AMD, Terrago, Cambria Canada, as well as For Life Outdoor. And what they're doing is they're getting their employees engaged. Um, so it's, it's an amazing employee engagement opportunity where, uh, as a group, they put together uh, as many gifts as they possibly can for the seniors within our communities. And, and those gifts themselves are going to be very uh, generic in nature. For instance, they will put together gift bags that may contain house coats, uh, wallets, picture frames, uh, maybe teddy bears, uh, costume jewelry, crossword puzzles, coloring books, things of that nature, something that can actually be received by uh, any gender or anybody of any elderly age. Uh, and so they put it all together, and uh, once it's all packaged and ready to go, on December the 12th, I'm going to get my sleigh going, and I'm going to go around from point A to point B and collect all of it so that we can distribute it to those that are in need. So will you also be distributing it out to the seniors on December 12th as well? So from a logistical and a confidentiality uh, reason, uh, it's not going to be actually myself that has the one-on-one interaction with the seniors. Um, many of the locations that we're delivering it to, for instance, Mackenzie Health, long-term care, um, as well as the reactivation care centers uh, in various uh, long-term care homes throughout York Region. There is a confidentiality consideration in place. Um, The important part is the gifts come to them and what their activities and recreations coordinators, they're the ones that are going to be responsible for identifying who is most in need of some of these gifts and they'll go about uh, about and actually distribute it accordingly. Um, I know that you you did mention the core corporate tie into this, um, but I'm sure uh, once residents here, they might want to, you know, also jump on the bandwagon, if you will, and uh, trying to find ways that they can also put a little bit of a smile on faces of seniors who may not be able to have any gifts this year. So what are some things that maybe people can purchase uh, to donate? Thank you for that clarification. You're absolutely right. It's not just corporate donations. We encourage the community at large to get their families involved, to get their neighbors and friends involved. You know, very basic uh, sort of uh, items, uh, you know, things such as slippers, uh, large number clocks, maybe a small radio, blankets, towels, socks, toiletries, uh, scarves, playing cards, uh, magnifiers, hats, uh, things of that nature. Uh, What we do uh, generally ask is that we avoid things such as sharps, maybe perishables, avoid sugars, or anything with strong scents. Uh, these gifts are going into uh, retirement and long-term uh, care facilities. So we do want to make sure that the gifts that we are delivering are safe. But other than that, you know, uh, use your imagination, uh, have fun. Uh, we do ask that everyone puts the gifts into gift bags so that they can go through a security check at the facilities. Safety is of the utmost importance. But if they can have those gifts delivered to our office on December the 12th, that would be fantastic. The more, the more that the community can get involved in this and participate, we are. We would be so humbled and absolutely um, just uh, just amazed with the support. Awesome. Okay, and then quickly, because I know it's 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 kind of the fad with holiday shopping. Are gift cards acceptable, or I mean, they are accepted, but you would prefer actual items? And of course, are monetary donations accepted? That's a very good question. Uh, Certainly, we would avoid the monetary donations. um, But what I think uh, the 
the best thing to do is actual physical gifts. Uh, the gift cards themselves, uh, although um, I, I would say very applicable in many situations, we do have to consider some of the, the lifestyle of some of these individuals. Um, many of them could be bed-bound. Um, some of them, because of physical limitations, may not even be able to go out and about and do any shopping. Uh, for instance, if we even have an Amazon gift card, they may not be tech-savvy enough to understand or know how to use that Amazon gift card. Um, and, you know, there's something so exciting and so magical about being able to actually open a physical, tangible gift. Uh, so I would say, you know, keep it to the basics and try to come come up with something creative uh, gift-wise for that individual. I know the, the goal for this year is uh, 500 gifts for seniors, but of course, if we can surpass that this year, why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, last year, uh, we, we collected uh, just, just about 300 or uh, just about 300 gifts. Um, I'm hoping that we can certainly surpass that. I think, you know, with the traction that we're getting uh, from the corporate side, but as well as more uh, awareness from uh, the public side of things, uh, I, if we can hit 500 gifts here in York Region, I think it would be the most amazing thing. And I know it will put the biggest smile on everyone's faces. And that is definitely a re uh, reachable goal. All right. And then finally, uh, for residents who want more information, who maybe just uh, maybe have a bit more questions or, of course, maybe want to participate and volunteer in some way, where can they go? Mm -hmm. Well, they can first and foremost call our office. Uh, we can be reached at 905-597-4757. Or they can visit our website. That's homeinstead.com forward slash Vaughn. Uh, either way, they can that's, give them an opportunity to reach out to us. We're happy to provide more insight. And uh, anybody that's willing or wants to participate in this program, uh, we'll welcome them with open arms. Perfect. Okay, Faryar, thank you so much for joining me today, letting me know about this wonderful program. And I do sincerely hope uh, residents across the region just, uh, just take a few dollars and, and buy something small. And uh, we never know how far it could really put uh, another smile on someone else's face and how much it could probably lift their spirits for the holiday season. Faryar, thank you so much. Thank you. You have yourself a lovely day. Next on the feed, Galit Solomon catches up with the mayor of Vaughan to learn more about his recent trade mission to Israel. Well, fresh off a business trip to Israel, I'm joined now by Vaughn Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua. Mayor Bevilacqua, welcome to the feed. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, really enjoyed the trip uh, to uh, to Israel. It was very uh, productive. As you know, we were there from November 22nd to November 30th. And uh, as you know, the mandate uh, is to encourage uh, job-creating trade, build alliances, pursue investments, support growth of local companies, and also deal with globally recognized institutions that take part in this uh, in this effort and strengthen the relationship between the Jewish and Israeli community here in the city of Vaughan and obviously in Israel. And I was going to say there is a big presence uh, of Israelis here in Canada, many of them holding uh, dual citizenship, Canadian and Israeli, and specifically in Vaughan too. It is a big community in Vaughan. Have you had a chance, by the way, to recover yet from uh, from the time change? Uh, yes, and we, you know, we came back, we had meetings right away, and uh, it was a great initiative. I, you know, we, uh, our delegation held meetings with government, business, and community leaders in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa, and Ramla, uh, met uh, all the mayors, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, worked on uh, developing relationships that are very important for the future of our city. 
we're doing many things right here in the city of Bonn. You know, we have the subway, we have a, a, a hospital being built that's open mm-hmm. uh, next year. Uh, there are many, many investments that we're making. And, but now we're in a different phase of the evolution of the city where we also have to look beyond uh, the Canadian borders and develop the type of uh, relationships that can benefit the citizens of Bonn, as you probably know. Yeah. We look beyond the Canadian borders. Well, when we, uh, when we went to the United States, was able to attract Niagara University, first university in, uh, in the city of Bonn and in Europe. So it's a broader view of uh, city building, and I think it will work very well for us. And the trip to Israel really included yourself, a number of city councillors, representatives from the Vaughan Chamber of Commerce, among others. I was going to ask about the purpose of the trip, but I think that you, you already indicated what it's, uh, it's really all about. Among the stops, though, you visited uh, the Rambam Medical Center. Vaughan, of course, is in the process of developing a hospital. Would you say, were there some, some insights that you and the team got during that? visit to the hospital? Yes, uh, smart city technologies deliver like quality public services uh, that really elevate uh, the quality of life for the citizens are very important. Israel is you know, always, uh, uh, as far as innovation and science and technology, they're ranked amongst the best. And so when, uh, and you probably remember the fact that we uh, signed a memorandum of agreement with uh, Venture Lab, McKenzie Health, and New York University uh, to, to deal with the hospital precinct. And so we visited hospitals to get uh, ideas on how to uh, incorporate uh, some of the uh, scientific knowledge and innovation-based knowledge that exists in Israel to to our own hospital. And so we've opened up uh, the lines of communication so that uh, the the Vaughan Healthcare uh, Center precinct, a future hub of cutting Edge research, innovation, and commerce in the life science sector, uh, which is which will be anchored to the city uh, city's first hospital, is is actualized and manifested uh, uh, in in our dialogue with uh, with uh, uh, Israel. Uh, the representative of the hospital, obviously, in Israel, were uh, were really uh, individuals that are re- leading edge thinkers in uh, in, uh, in in science and, and innovation. And uh, we learned quite a bit from them. And the dialogue will uh, will continue. Yeah, that's great. And I guess that's part of it, right? Uh, physically, actually being there um, and meeting and showing interest, obviously, in um, in how things may be done in a different country can, can, in a sense, also turn things around. And and you know, we we take a look at the um, uh, downtown Vaughan and obviously lots of development development happen, happening there. And it may be a bit too premature to talk about this, but were there opportunities for businesses who are considering setting up shop in, in Canada and perhaps more specifically Vaughan? Yes, and the Vaughan Chamber of Commerce has had actually many uh, business-to-business meetings and reports uh, that I received uh, from uh, Mr. Schiffman and the president of uh, the Vaughan Chamber of Commerce have been very positive, and uh, we'll get a report as to precisely uh, what, what transpired. But it's very important to have um, personal contact. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's quite different doing it uh, uh, by telephone or, or video. Uh, it, the human uh, dynamics that exist when you meet people uh, are very important. Uh, particularly um, in, in our cultures, where where we like to have uh, a sense of who we're dealing with, uh, what the um, uh, what the objectives are, and what what are the prospects. And I think person to person meetings uh, are are much much better. 
than the ones we do when we, we use uh, technology. Mm-hmm. And speaking of connections, one of the cities you had mentioned that you visited was Ramle. I have to say, it's a neighboring city to where I was born and grew up. Um, and, and there's a connection there to Vaughn as well. I, I remember seeing your post actually on LinkedIn. Uh, can you tell us about it a little bit? Well, the the relationship we have is we have a, a twinning program uh, with uh, with Ramla, and uh, and I I, uh, I went uh, back to, uh, to to Israel to uh, back in June. I, I sorry, I wrote to to Mayor Vidal outlining my desire to continue to reaffirm and modernize the Bon Ramla relationship. So we had a very uh, a very important meeting uh, that resulted in in signing of a memorandum of understanding, which will commit uh, both of our uh, two municipalities to develop a comprehensive four four year action plan that advances cultural opportunities uh, between two, the, the, the two uh, uh, the two cities. And what I will say is that our twinning programs, some are driven by uh, culture, others are driven by uh, business and economics. Uh, and uh, and this one is. Uh, uh, focusing on on cult- both cultural and business opportunities that exist between uh, the uh, the two cities. And so I was really happy to meet with him and his council. The meeting went exceptionally well. Uh, you know, a great rapport, and uh, it's really the the beginning of uh, and reigniting the uh, the relationship. And it's uh, it's a program that I totally endorse. I'm doing this with uh, many uh, many. Uh, Cities that have a, uh, that are part of our tuning program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm meeting with with mayors, uh, uh, not just uh, in Israel but in other uh, parts uh, of the world, to see how interested they are in maintaining uh, these relationships uh, that speak to, uh, I think, uh, uh, a very important element of city building, and that is uh, a global outreach. You also had an opportunity to visit uh, Yad Vashem, which is Israel's official Holocaust memorial. Tell us about yes. that experience. Many people, well, I know I myself moving. visited it. It is moving, right? Yeah, it's not my first time. I've been there a number of times. Mm. and Every time I go, I uh, learn uh, something uh, new. Uh, obviously, it's, uh, it's a time in, in the history that uh, that we should always remind ourselves of and, and we must always be vigilant, not... Uh, uh, not false, not fall into a false sense of security. Uh, we need to be uh, vigilant about, you know, protecting uh, human beings, uh, under- remembering the history, and uh, and never forgetting. And uh, as you as you walk through Yad Vashem, uh, and especially when you also go through the uh, Children's Memorial, uh, it's a constant reminder of uh, of darkness in in, in the world, but. Uh, as you also walk through it, what you rec- recognize is that a single ray of light can, in fact, erase darkness. And a single ray of light is us, people who believe in democracy, people who believe mm-hmm. in uh, respect for each other, people who, who embrace uh, the fact that we share this uh, uh, global reality and uh, be kind, be generous, and be compassionate to, to one another. And it's very important for those who believe in freedom and human rights and the rule of law uh, to always be vigilant, uh, because as you and I both know, history repeats itself, and you want to make sure that it never repeats itself for uh, for all the atrocities that uh, that have that occurred to the Jewish people. Um, it's it's something that uh, I was reflecting upon uh, at the Wailing Wall as I contemplated and prayed. Uh, that's something that uh, to me is uh, fundamental, and whenever I. I I make this trip to Israel. I always leave enriched as a human being, spiritually uplifted, because I'm so impressed by the tenacity, perseverance, 
of, um, of the Jewish people to, to keep going and uh, to always dream of a better tomorrow. Mm. Well said. Uh, one final question before we let you go. Um, obviously, it was a large delegation uh, from here. So looking ahead, how will this trip impact the city of Vaughan uh, and its residents? Well, it will. First of all, I think that uh, from a knowledge base, uh, having people be more aware of the relationship between Israel and, and our city is profoundly important, particularly because we have a very large Jewish and Israeli community uh, that is uh, fundamental. Uh, it gives us a greater awareness of uh, everyone's uh, roots and disposition, cultural and otherwise. Uh, I also think that opening up uh, opportunities for business can, in fact, generate wealth on both sides. I'm one of these uh, individuals that believes that uh, the only way that these type of relationships uh, work is when there's a win-win. Uh, so, for example, uh, in, in, uh, in Tel Aviv, I learned a great deal about how they organize and structure their public services and community services, which, I, which I've learned a great deal about uh, because they use... Um, avant-garde uh, technological uh, products to, uh, and services to, to provide top-notch uh, services uh, to, to the residents, which I think we can learn from. And um, overall, it's, uh, it's just improving the awareness and increasing the awareness of, uh, of what is going on around you, around the, this world that is so interconnected. Connected, and there is a real interconnection between uh, the city uh, of Vaughan and, and the state of Israel. As you know, the second largest community hub and center uh, outside of Israel is actually uh, here in, in, uh, in the in city of Vaughan and Bathurst. Uh, so, you know, there's a, it was, a, it was a, a good way to, to invest time and energy in something that I think can, can bear fruit uh, in the present and in the future. Very good. Vaughn Mayor Maurizio Bevelacqua, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story thank with you us. Go. This is the feed on 1059, the region where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including Newmarket's new plan to manage the town's trash. Netta Sarshar with that story. Joining me today to speak about sustainable waste management is Nick Ahola, president of AC Waste Services. They are a family-owned business in Newmarket committed to helping other businesses and organizations to provide effective and environmentally friendly means to dispose of waste. Most recently, they had an exciting new partnership with the town of Newmarket to install two earth bins. Thank you for joining us, Nick. Thank you for having me. So can you explain in your own words what exactly AC Waste Services is involved in? Yeah, so we're a uh, waste consulting business, and uh, we actually specialize in uh, waste equipment and commercial waste haulage. And how long have you been involved in this type of work? We've been uh, involved for seven years now, and uh, it's actually a family-run business where my father-in-law started um, almost 40 years ago, so our roots are about 45 years old now. Amazing. And is that all centered in Newmarket? It's right across Canada, actually. Uh, we actually started in Barrie, and then um, it's uh, grown uh, right across the country. Can you talk about how the partnership with the town of Newmarket came about? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually a really interesting story. It's, uh, one of our clients is um, a restaurant called Joya, and uh, they're located in Aurora, and they're actually, um, at the time, they were expanding to Newmarket, and they're building a brand-new building 
just uh, in the River Walk Commons area. And one of their issues was the uh, their waste stream, and uh, so they came to me and we started discussing it. And a um, long story short was they didn't feel comfortable putting just a regular dumpster outside their building. They were building this uh, multi-million dollar new restaurant, and they just thought the uh, the curb appeal of having a steel dumpster outside didn't match what they were trying to build. Um, and that was about two years ago. We started having conversations um, regarding what options would be viable for them. And uh, we started talking about some in-grounds waste units. Um, and it was actually at the same time when the town of Newmarket was touring the area and talking about their waste issues in the area as well. And they were actually considering in-ground waste units as well. So uh, we actually started a conversation with, between the town and the, the restaurant Joya. And we became uh, partners after a little while, us with the town of Newmarket and Earthen. And uh, we found out that this is probably the best solution for the town of Newmarket as well. Can you tell us what exactly are earth bins? Yeah, so earth bins are actually in-ground waste units. So basically what they are is um, they're made of recyclable and durable plastic, and they're anchored to the ground. So the top of the container is actually above ground, and they actually sit probably about chest level. And then there's a five-foot sleeve that goes underground, and that's where the garbage is held. So a lot of the benefits of this um, this kind of system is actually the waste is cooled naturally, so it reduces odor, and it remains uh, at underground temperatures. And why is this more environmentally friendly than a regular dumpster? What it does is solves a lot of the waste issues that are out there. It has lockable lids, um, so it's able to um, deter rodents and the smell in the area. Um, it also has like a natural... Um, compactor where the weight actually gets uh, filtered into the sleeve so the weight of the waste actually pushes the waste down so therefore it kind of eliminates or reduces some of the waste pickups and what do you hope like how how do you hope that this project will continue to expand yes well we first started talking to the town new market it was for these in-ground units but after talking to them and uh, discussing what their needs and their uh, their hopes were with this project we decided that we're going to add some new features to these bins. And some of the new features that we're going to add is actually a uh, sensor above the lid, which will monitor the actual volume of the uh, contents of these bins. We're actually going to be um, inserting a key fob system, so it will be able to swipe card technology to actually realize who's actually using the bin, and then will unlock once they use that fob. And then a third system, actually, which is really cool, is actually waste bag restrictor. So when you open the lid, you'll only be able to put one bag of waste in at a time. With all these three components, we're actually be able to figure out exactly who's using the garbage and we're able to charge them for their waste. So companies out there will um, have the option of, you know, putting as much waste in as possible and being charged for it, or actually we're going to be encouraging them to reduce their garbage and therefore reduce their costs. Amazing. That's so cool. So the assumption is, of course, that the more that you are charged for your garbage, the more careful you're going to be about what you throw out. That's right. It really puts the onus on the owners now and um, and the people that are using these bins. You know, what we've seen um, previously is that when people are being charged for their garbage, 
Um, they're actually pretty careful about what they put in and how much they put in. And, um, yeah, that's that's a really neat feature about this. That's great. Do you have a timeline? I know right now it's two earth bins. Is there sort of a plan in place right now that you would hope to see more of them installed? Yeah, right now with the pilot project, we're, um, we're starting off. We actually started lifts last week. Um, so we're actually just putting the components on the bins now, and we're actually developing the technology for the waste bag restrictor. So with everything said, we're hoping that early summer we'll have all these components on and working with the software we're developing. Um, and with that being said, um, once we get this project up and running, hopefully we get some realistic numbers and, um, you know, the town of Newmarket's happy with it and they want to move forward with more bins. And is the town of Newmarket right now the only pilot project or are you seeing success in other areas around Canada? Yeah, well, we're seeing tremendous success with these urban units. Um, you know, what we're really seeing is that communities are really trying to encourage their landlords or their people that own property to move in this direction rather than having um, open bins all over. They're encouraging the user bins to reduce the, you know, illegal dumping and uh, the rodent infestation and just to try and clean up garbage as much as possible. Um, and where can we find more information about the work that you do? So for more information, people can reach out to us at uh, www acwasteservices.com or they could go to uh, earthbin.com to find out more about earthbins actually thank you so much for everything that you're doing for a community hopefully this can continue to expand throughout york region and it'll help us all be more accountable for our waste absolutely thanks for having me today You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Well, a perfect topic of conversation for The Feed is airline food. And we have the man who helped conduct a survey called the Airline Food Study with us on The Feed, Dr. Charles Platkin, editor of dietdetective.com and the director of the Hunter College New York City Food Policy Center. Thank you for joining us on The Feed. Oh, thank you so much, Ed. Thanks for having me on the show. What prompted you to put together this study? Well, believe it or not, I've been doing it for close to 20 years now. So we started this, and, and it started just because I was a passenger on the flight, and at that time, most airlines gave away free food, and I watched them deliver the food to the seat, and I saw everybody eating it, and I looked at it, and I tasted it, and I said, wow, not only is it terrible, but it's incredibly high in calories and sodium, and uh, it could do nothing, you know, but, but good, bad for you. So, and I watched everybody scoff it down, and I thought, wow, this would be a great idea um, to do a study on and to sort of look at what airlines are serving to passengers, and, and I've been doing it, you know, on and off till uh, about 2009, and then I've been doing it every year, so for the last decade since 2009. And then most recently, uh, I did an airline water study, um, which was not, which we did not include Air Canada, but in this survey, in this study, we do include Air Canada. Interesting, you know, you think about passengers, and they're kind of a captive audience when they're at 35,000 feet. Let's talk about some of the ratings, uh, and you mentioned Air Canada, and since we are a Canadian radio station, uh, how did they rate in terms of the health side of the food that they are serving? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, 
Air Canada, you know, some people love them and a lot of people hate them, but you know what? They really are trying with their food, and they they were the leader in the survey in the study several years ago, um, and then they fell out of uh, at a turn, and they really they were doing actually terrible in my eyes, but they were always in the top four or five. This year, though, they added a lot of healthier fare, and we were really excited and impressed in what they're doing. They're really, you know, very they're close to Alaska, but you know, it, it, you know with all things considered. Um, they're just doing a really, really good job when it comes to health and considering their passengers when it comes to food. Where is the food put together and produced and created and, and cooked in cases like Air Canada? And let's even go down the list to one of the lower ones. Southwest Airlines did not score too high. So where is the food created? And is that an important question? Well, it's an interesting question. But, you know, it's, it's, it, the thing is, is that most airlines, um, use the facility within the airport that they're departing from, right? Those are the places that uh, they have food facilities there, and that's where the meals are prepared and the foods are prepared unless it's packaged. So it really depends on where the plane is departing from. What happens is they're very specific recipes. The meal handlers or the food handlers are the ones that are preparing those recipes precisely to the order of uh, Air Canada or Alaska Interesting. These days, uh, a lot of the airlines are charging a hefty fee for a meal. Is that incentive on the part of the airline to offer better choices, healthier choices? Well, that's a really good question. You would think that that would be true. But, you know, I feel like airlines move at glacial speed when it comes to innovation. Glacial speed when it comes to innovation. So they're very slow to respond um, you know, in, in the U.S., and, and I assume this is in Canada, we have Whole Foods, but I'm sure there's a tremendous um, uh, consumer demand for healthier food everywhere across the world. And the, but, however, the airlines are not taking that cue, and they would think that they would look at the, you would think that they would look at the research, and they would see that, you know, when you eat high-quality food that's low in calories and high in nutrients, well, it actually impacts your mood in such a significant way. And it's not like there's one or two um, uh, anomaly research studies. There's a plethora of research that substantiates that. So how does that translate for the airline and, and what you asked about the, the fees? Well, an airline should really recognize that if uh, you have a happy passenger, meaning that they ate quality foods that are nutritious and not you know, calorie-laden and make you feel tired and lethargic, that you're going to probably – feel connected in a better way to that airline and actually feel um, happier. You might not know why. Uh, and as a result, there would be better customer satisfaction. And if you're a business traveler or a vacation traveler, both of those considerations would be really important for an airline to recognize, but they generally don't. A lot of airlines are concerned about uh, leg room and uh, entertainment that is available on board. Are they beginning to take seriously the need for top-notch, healthy, safe, and uh, and clean food, if you will? Yeah, so I think that they, they're, they're considering it, but again, they're moving too slowly. But that's where in, in Air, Air Canada and Alaska... Um, are really thinking these things through. Like Air Canada, for instance, is one of the only is the only airline that actually serves real meals for flights that are under three hours. Okay, so they start at two hours, where every other airline is three and three and a half, and they're even moving further up to not carry meals. So 
you know, I think that that's a really disservice. And again, they're not thinking clearly and they're not recognizing this as an incredible source of income for them, for, for, the, for the airlines. And food safety is crucial. Uh, and I remember from my flight attendant days that we served our pilots in the cockpit uh, food from completely different containers, from completely different sides of wherever it was being created. So there wasn't the risk of of food poisoning times two or times three, however many people were in the cockpit. That's correct. I'm sure that that was a critical thing, and I never even heard that. But if you don't mind, I'd like to use that when I uh, talk about it, <laughs> if that's okay with you. you. Absolutely. That, you know, and that, that sort of brings up, yeah, food safety is absolutely critical. And I would suggest that um, – that, that, that airlines and airports are not as, uh, they're not as, the food is not handled as safely as it should be because there are so many different um, opportunities for uh, foodborne illness. However, we just did an airline water study where we ranked U.S. Uh, airlines and looked at their EPA violations. And we found that because there's, an, there's something called an aircraft water drinking rule. Um, and the, we found that the water had uh, several instances of E. coli contamination um, in the galley water. So, you know, we, we, we just want passengers to be aware and airlines to know that in the interest of going green, because it would be great if we didn't have to have plastic water bottles on the, on the air, air, airplanes, right, on the aircrafts. However, the galley water is not safe enough for us to yeah. fill up our own bottles, yeah. right? Um, so, in, in my opinion. So and the research that I've done. Wanting to go green without turning green in this case. Oh, I love that. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the case. So, you know, we want to consider those kinds of things. It has been fascinating hearing from you and what you do for a living. I have to ask you before we say farewell, what's your favorite airline meal? Bringing my own. <laughs> <laughs> B Y O M. Yeah, I bring my own food, and uh, and I'm excited to do that. And I, I prepare it well, and I think ahead. And if not, if I get caught where I don't, I always just I grab like three salads um, in the airports. And thank goodness now that they most of the airports that I travel have a, a salad or two, which is always nice. Dr. Charles Platkin, editor of DietDetective.com, director of the Hunter College New York City Food Policy Center. Thank you so much for chewing this over with us. Really appreciate it. Oh, and, thank uh, you, Anne. Happy trails. Thanks. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer. Over to Jim Lang next in conversation about hockey from the Leafs to bad coaches to Hockey Canada. He's got it covered. Sean Fitzgerald, not only is he the senior writer for The Athletic and has penned the um, the ultimate sports fans thing called 20 Questions, he's also the author of a fascinating new book, Before the Lights Go Out, A Season Inside, A Game on the Brink. And he joins us on The Feed. Sean, how are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mean, it's a pleasure. I mean, Sean, you talk about many topics that are, are so timely in this book, including the thesis that fewer children than ever in Canada are strapping on skates and fewer are staying in the game as they grow. As, as you've traveled around, if you've spoken to different people, uh, has there been anything surprising about the response and feedback to this book that maybe even you didn't expect? What I expected when I when I sort of set out to report this book was I thought there'd be a lot of pushback. I thought I'd I'd go and I'd, I'd meet people in minor hockey who'd say, 
No, hockey's fine. Hockey's hockey's the same as it ever was. It's oh, it's very strong. There's, you know, it's still our game. Um, by by a lot of the folks that I met, you know, people still believe it's it's our game, but they also acknowledge that there's huge problems. There's there's huge barriers that have been allowed to grow up around the game, which are really threatening that game's hold on the Canadian psyche. That you know, it's it's not inconceivable that you know the tether that bound us all to this game is fraying and, and might be at some point in danger of snapping altogether. I know where I am. I'm in a very suburban area. My wife and kids, we live in Newmarket and in the York region area. I know high school basketball, elementary school basketball and volleyball are growing in huge popularity, not only the high school level, but, but in like rep basketball leagues outside of the schools, that's become a huge sport in our area of the GTA. Yeah, no, And I mean, that's one of the issues is that, you know, hockey has had to face, you know, more competition than, than ever before. You know, for a long time, hockey's marketing plan was, hey, Canada, it's cold outside, so why don't you come into the arena? Cause <laughs> yeah. What else are you going to do, right? But but now, like, even, even small towns have soccer bubbles where you can go and play soccer year-round. There is, you know, very good and, and quickly evolving basketball leagues. There's there's other sports. There's not playing sports at all. You can you can play esports. You know, the, Toronto now has esports franchises where – People will cram into massive concert theaters and watch people play video games. That that certainly wasn't around when I was a kid or when you know you were a kid. So these are all new innovations. And the thing is, is that you know hockey hasn't evolved alongside that. A lot of folks haven't in the game figured out or found a way to you know reach out to communities. So rather than having everybody just sort of you know storm the arena doors when it got cold outside, hockey now has to market itself. And that's a new space, and it's been slow to evolve, and, and it's kind of missed the bus in a lot of those respects. I think there's an oversimplification, Sean, to say, well, you know, Canada's demographics have changed. We're a different nation. But it's not just, quote-unquote, new Canadians. I mean, our kids, I see them in high school, and there's a lot of, quote-unquote, established Canadians who are not turning to hockey. How did we get to that point? Oh, jeez. How long are we on the air for? Are we on the air for another, <laughs> what, three, four hours here? So... Let's go on the base premise that the biggest challenge is the professionalization of the game at the youth level. So what does that mean? That means that, you know, teams, you know, as young as four, five, and six can be working with, like, professional skills development coaches, that there, there are hockey camps, hockey tournaments, um, you know, regimented hockey systems and schools and all of these things. So they all get thrown into the mix. So now when we're talking about the cost of hockey, we're not just talking about, you know, the myth of the $300 stick. And they exist, by the way, like actually $300 for hockey. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's, it's the associated costs. It's the costs for this added teaching. Paid coaches at the youth hockey level. Um, all of this stuff drives up the cost so that if you're in the game, it's, it's expensive. And it gets really expensive really quickly. So what are the sort of the, the out, outward effects to that? Well, you know, if you had kids at the grassroots level and, you know, one's been skating in these, you know, professionalized environment for two or three years, um, another child who might just be entering hockey at, say, six, seven, or eight is going to realize, that, oh, my God, I can't skate like that. And, and maybe they get drummed out of the game or they get streamed out of the game too early. And even though that, you know, at some point maybe the, the child who started later might turn out to be an excellent athlete, they get drummed out of hockey early because they didn't maybe have the same advantages that, you know, the other child then who, who adopted it earlier. So you have that. Um, and then, yeah, you have the barrier that, you know, hockey, hockey hasn't done a good job of reaching out to communities that aren't otherwise represented in the arenas, the, the, the sense of feeling welcome. 
um, that, yeah, they don't have representation on the minor hockey association boards from communities that aren't represented in the rinks. And, and I'm not blaming the people who administer the programs because, you know, minor hockey survives not through the grace of, say, Hockey Canada or money that's trickled down from the system, but it's on the backs of the volunteers who are at your local arena who are well-meaning and love the game and are doing an important community service by, you know, opening these rinks and getting these leagues going. Um, but the challenge is, is that, you know, the volunteers, they, they might be journalists. I mean, they might be butchers. They might be bus drivers. They might be anything. They might not have the training in, say, marketing. So how do you market, you know, the fact that you have registration opening for your local minor hockey association? They might not have, you know, connections to communities that aren't otherwise tied to the game. And, you know, wouldn't have, you know, the, maybe the education from Hockey Canada or from the Ontario Hockey Federation or somewhere to say, look, here are the steps you can take to, to get folks into the tent of minor hockey. Uh, they're not supported, I think, maybe might be the better word, um, in those pursuits. So, you know, it's another challenge. It's another barrier to entry. It's another reason why folks might choose a pursuit other than hockey. Speaking with Sean Fitzgerald, the senior writer of The Athletic and the author of a compelling new book, Before the Lights Go Out, A Season Inside, A Game on the Brink. And over the last couple of weeks, Sean, we've seen some quite disturbing allegations involving some senior members of the game at the highest level. And I think about the allegations and coaches being fired and going on leave of absences. And I think what kind of effect will this have on families who are deciding whether or not to put their children into the game, into hockey? Well, I think in a lot of ways, you know, for, for one, I mean, let's set aside the, the racial abuse because I think that is a, a separate issue, although it's, it's obviously tied all to what you, you just talked about. I think the racial abuse is, is a separate issue. And if we take a look at, you know, um, say the physical abuse and the mental abuse that, you know, not that long ago, you know, ways to motivate players using negative reinforcement um, were celebrated. Um, yeah. You think of all the times you've heard, oh, this coach used mind games to get, get under his player's skin. Boy, they hate him until they won. Like well, Mike Keenan, right? This is, yeah, I didn't want to name the name, but there you are. Right? Yeah. That's a good example. Um, you know, I think what this is going to do, hopefully, if you're feeling optimistic here on a workday morning, um, that it causes a reevaluation. It causes a discussion of, look, you know, what is acceptable in a workplace environment? And, and hockey is you know, not necessarily the grassroots level, but if we're talking top down, it's still a workplace environment. And I think there there have has been some work to, to show that, you know, positive reinforcement of encouraging rather than tearing people down will get better results. So, you know, if we have that discussion and, and it filters down to the grassroots that coaches you don't have to berate or get in to your players' faces or, you know, really sort of tear them down personally in order to get them to perform on the ice, that's a good thing. That, that is something that if you're feeling optimistic, that's what can come out of all of this, a discussion of, look, you know, coaching doesn't mean you have to be angry and yelling and throwing and throwing tantrums and, and really tearing down your players. It's, it's far better to build them up, to give them confidence, and to show them the way forward rather than tearing them down. Well, and Sean, it's a reason like that and a theory like that. that I, ref- I feel Sheldon Keefe is an inspired choice by Kyle Dubas to replace Mike Babcock. He's the right coach at the right time. However, I wonder, does he have the pieces in place t- to turn the team around like a lot of people think he will with a snap of a finger? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting situation now. I mean, um, they've had a, a, a couple of borderline stinkers. Um, you know, you start to wonder, you know, are – 
who is healthy and, and who isn't playing at 100%. And, I mean, maybe you, you look at a couple of the big-name players and you wonder, are they fully up to speed? Because this this is it. Like, with their salary cap, and, and, and they're right up against it, this is this is who they've got now. There's not going to be a lot of room for help unless there's some major and surprising moves. So, um, you know, do they have the horses? Well, this is, we're going to find out. Everybody's, everybody's more or less back and, and healthy uh, as far as we know. So, you know, these are the horses they're going to have to ride all the way to the end of the season, however it ends. Uh, uh, real quick, I know I still play old guys hockey with my buddies every Friday in Aurora. Are you still playing? I, I play terribly. I play terribly <laughs> on Monday and Thursday nights. I bring shame on my, on my family name and the game itself. Okay, now your team name is one of the better beer league team names I've ever heard. <laughs> Please tell the listeners what the team name is. Uh, the Monday night beer league team is Smell the Gloves. I think it, that is so brilliant. <laughs> so brilliant. Uh, Sean, I joined it while it was in progress. It wasn't my it wasn't my <laughs> concoction, but I will happily take any credit for it. I look forward to your next edition of Twenty Questions on the Athletic and uh, continued success with all your work, Sean. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. Jim. Well, that's our show for this week. Thank you for being with us. If you missed any part of the feed or you have a story, idea, or a community event to share, head to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer.